Hey, what's up? This is Michael, and this is Dungeon Talk, episode 31. Yes and what? So before we get into this week's episode, I do have a couple announcements I want to cover first. Number one being we have drawn for our mailbag question winner. We originally wanted to wait till we had 20 questions, and to be honest, it's just taken a little longer than we had thought or hoped. So we went ahead and uh, randomly threw some dice and came up with a winner, and that winner is Michael Lawhorn. So Michael, congratulations. Thank you for sending your question in, and thank you to everyone else who did as well. We still don't have 20 different people that have sent in questions, but we are getting more and more questions, uh, mostly now through Facebook more than anything. And I do want to thank you guys for sending those in. It does help us talk about things and keep the podcast going. And uh, I also appreciate that we're starting to build a little bit of a community. We're still pretty small, but we have people that are interacting on Facebook with us, asking questions and answering questions back. And then also a reminder that we do have a new Google Plus community under D&D Academy. I'd like to try to get that started as well. The forums are still going, but they're kind of dead. Really, no one's posted on there other than me in a long time, and I don't even do that very often. Uh, I just find the Facebook thing more convenient, and it kind of does the same thing anyway. So if you're a member of the forum, please go ahead and like us on Facebook and start interacting there or the Google Plus or maybe even both. A couple other announcements. We're going to take a short break with the holiday season, Christmas, and then New Year. This will be our last podcast for the next couple of weeks. And then when we start back, there'll be a couple changes. First of all, um, Evans had some life happen to him recently. And uh, he's going to need to take a little bit of a break from playing as well as spending time with the podcast. So in his uh, absence, as short as I hope it is, Caleb G. is going to step in and be our guest host. Uh, You should know Caleb from writing articles on the website for a while. He's also participated in a couple Dungeon Talks, uh, this one you're about to hear included. So I've, I've reached out to him, and he has kindly agreed to step in and be a guest host for a while. Ben and we're going to work it out where he and I can do some podcasting using the Google uh, Hangouts. Now, I know the thing that I've probably said more than I want to be a writer on this podcast has been, I'm sorry for the audio quality, and we have continued to get better and better. And I think we've got to a point now where we are probably, outside of like a studio situation, we're probably one of the better sounding podcasts. I hope you agree with me. But some of that is because we do record in the basement that we've now got blocked off and we have these nice mics and we do multi-line recording. I can't do that over Google Hangouts. Pretty much I'm using a headset mic that I would use to play, you know, Call of Duty. And I think Caleb is using the microphone that comes with his computer. So there is definitely going to be an audio quality difference uh, on those Dungeon Talks. The campaigns should continue to have their current quality, if not better, because I am still tweaking some things. But please be a little bit forgiving on those Dungeon Talks. But when we come back, we're also going to start our new full-fledged campaigns podcast. We've been doing a lot of tweaks and trials and, you know, stand-in games. Um, You know, since the Made Men has stopped, uh, we have started a new campaign. It's called A New World, and it's been going on for several months now. I've got quite a few episodes already edited and uh, ready to go, so I'm hoping that we'll be able to release those on a pretty regular schedule. But I'm also excited to um, announce that I have a couple other things in the works from a podcast standpoint. I ran a mini-adventure called City of the Damned that lasted four four sessions. That'll be probably about eight or nine episodes. Basically, it's a how-to-run-a-game tutorial from Michael's point of view. And there's going to be a whole series of podcasts and posts that go with that. I created that game using the Synergy method that we've done before. So I have one article that will be the cards that I drew and kind of the the original outline that I came up with. And then for each episode, I'm going to talk a little bit about the outline that I wrote just for that game. And then I want to do a secondary podcast, kind of like a director's commentary track, and cover sort of like what was supposed to happen versus what did happen. And then throughout the course of that game, and then hopefully it's an adventure that you guys may, if you're, you are new and you're looking for, to, you know, how to run a game, that you could take this adventure that I'm showing you and run it for your group. And pretty much I've done most of the work for you. So I'm really excited about that. I think, I think the adventure turned out really well. It was a lot of fun. The one issue that we had is we had some attendance issues. So we had everybody here for the first night. We didn't have everybody here again until the last night. Uh, so the adventures in the middle, I had to tweak a little bit, but again, that's good lesson because that happens in real life where you know people can't make it. 
On this episode, we have Caleb G. sitting in. We also have another guest host, Matthew Parody, who uh, is on another podcast called Probably Questionable Podcast. He is a uh, improv-er who also founded his own improv troupe called IPA Comedy. I'll have those links in the show notes. And we talk about some improv techniques that you can use in your game, specifically Yes Hand, which is it has been bastardized uh, on forums and Google and everything that I've seen, and it's really kind of got away from what it actually means, at least from my point of view. So we kind of talk a little about that. We also talk about want and truth. So those are the three techniques that we talk about from an improv standpoint that might help you run a better game or, or be a better role player. Uh, we in, then kind of jump around a little bit, and we talk about a podcast that I listened to that kind of pissed me off. And I have a little bit of a rant, and uh, Caleb and uh, Matthew kind of agreed with me. Hopefully you will as well. And then we talk about um, encumbrance and ammunition tracking in the game. Is it necessary? When is it necessary? We talk about props in the game. Uh, can they help? Can they hurt? And then we kind of finish it up with uh, secretive information. How do you handle information that only some people or only one person at the table knows? Do you send notes? Do you text? Do you send emails? Do you make everyone leave the room except that person? Do you leave the room except that person, you know, with that person? If you left the room without that person, that wouldn't make much sense. So here it is, Dungeon Talk episode 31, Yes and What? Welcome to Dungeon Talk episode 31. I have a couple guest hosts with me today, uh, Caleb G, who you know from Twitter and also from uh, the website. And we have an extra special guest with us tonight, uh, Matthew, is it Parody? It's Parody, but my stage name is going to be Parody, so whichever you choose. Okay, well, because it kind of, because I know you're doing the improv, and I was like, I actually wondered if Parody was a stage name or not. But Matthew, if you don't mind, because you're the new voice. Would you give us a little bit of your background as far as role-playing games, how you got started, what you play currently, that kind of stuff? Sure, sure, sure. I started gaming uh, back in uh, Dungeons & Dragons. I, th I think it was the original, but I was like seven when I started. So I remember that I was a dwarf, and my brother was a dwarf, and we were going through this dungeon, and I died, and I threw a tantrum, and that was basically my first game of Dungeons & Dragons. <laughs> and... Uh, since then, I've been playing, you know, every edition of D&D since. I did a lot of AD&D, did a lot of third, doing a lot of fourth. So have you tried any of the next stuff at all, or are you just waiting for that to actually come out? If I, ha I have done some of the next stuff. What are your uh, thoughts? It's good. I don't, I, don't like, um, I don't like how often they're changing it, but I, I do like it. I mean, it's good enough. And so you've been playing D&D for, for quite a while. Now, do you play other games, or is it pretty much strictly um, Dungeons & Dragons? Yeah, I play other games. I have, uh, I have um, a boatload of Warhammer 40K figures. Uh, we, uh, we recently started Iron Kingdoms RPG for Privateer Press. That's the game I'm currently playing. I played a lot of Battletech. I played a lot of, played a lot of Gorka Morka, and that was cool. Um, I played a, a lot of things, a lot of Games Workshop games. That's about it. Okay. I, now, if, one it, of the... if it has a game, I've played it. Okay. Well, one of the reasons why we wanted to have you on the podcast was uh, you have an improv background as well. So we want to talk to you about some of the, the, the techniques that you can use in improv and how it can work in D&D &D games or RP games. So tell us a little bit about your improv background before we get too far into this. Uh, well, my improv background is a while ago. Well, not a while. Yeah, a while ago. Uh, I used to go down to uh, a town by me that has a theater. They had an improv show, and I would go and I would watch it. And... Uh, after a time, they put out auditions, so I tried out. Uh, I got in as a quote-unquote intern, and, well, needless to say, they didn't really want me. They kept me on the line for a while, and uh, after that, I just stopped going, and uh, I bumped around for a couple improv troops. I did some in New York City. I did a couple out in the Hamptons, and now I have my own that I created with a couple friends. Oh, excellent. So you actually have your own troupe then? Yes. Yeah, we're now, IPA comedy. Do you do like, you know, dorky gamer type improv or is it just straight, strictly anything, whatever? Anything you want. It's improv. You you say it, we'll do it. I was once a sentient pile of uh, ice cream melting. 
So you were playing Gamma World. Yeah, basically, yeah. <laughs> so uh, when I was bringing this up to Caleb tonight, I didn't know, didn't know it, but he actually has a, a little bit of an improv background as well. So our side is not wholly ignorant of uh, what oh, you're going to cool. talk about. So specifically, I wanted to see if you could bring up a couple, maybe the techniques. I know the most famous one is yes and. It gets mm -hmm. talked about all the time and mostly misinterpreted as my understanding of what yes and means. So if you would explain what yes and actually means and then how you would apply it as a DM and or as a player in an RPG game. Uh, yes and just means a, a way to further the scene. So when you say yes, you're, you're not only just acknowledging what the uh, character has said, but also that you're bringing the scene to a different place. So like yes and implies you can't say no, because when you say no, you're denying and you're stopping the progression of the scene. You can say no and continue the scene if you're like, no, this is what I had planned for our picnic today. And you have set a denial, but you've also moved the scene on, so it's not the worst thing in the world. So I think a lot of times when I listen to other people on other podcasts or even read things on Google, most people have interpreted the yes and to mean that as a DM, I should never deny my players something that they ask for. That's which, ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> um, the way I would interpret it, it would be more like if we were doing a role-playing session and I said, well, you know, when I was a kid, uh, I was in the circus and that's how I know something and just kind of BSing on the fly. And then you're just like, you weren't in the circus. It just completely deny me that reality that I'm creating right, right, for right. my character. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's, a, that's a horrible thing to do to, to anyone in, a, in an improv scene, especially in a, in, a, in a game like that. So can you think of any uh, situations where that is, you've applied that as a DM or as a player? Where, I, where, I've, de where I've denied them something? No, 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 no the actual <laughs> proper use of yes and. Oh, yes and? Uh, yeah, I had a guy during character creation, he created a Dragonborn Avenger. And he named himself Kylan the Last Dragonborn. And he decided that he was the last Dragonborn. And I said, you know, you, you, you're not the last Dragonborn. It's not how that works. He goes, no, I am. I was like, okay, when you meet one in a town, what are you going to do? He's like, I'm going to kill him. And then I will be the last Dragonborn again. I'm like, what if we walk into a city full of Dragonborns? And he said, I will kill every single person until I'm the last Dragonborn. And I was like, you know what? I could work with this. And I made, and I ended up, changing the entire campaign for him to actually be the last dragonborn but it only happened when i asked him i said so can i ask you a question do you have a tail and he goes of course i have a tail what kind of ridiculous question is that and that's when it all came together i i made you know the, the dragonborns get annihilated but they bred with lizard men he's actually a lizard man that's kind of a dragonborn it was a crazy harebrained scheme <laughs> it worked i want to play in that game i'm just going to say that right now that was one of the only campaigns I've had that, that had an ending. Yeah, I know that feeling uh, yeah. way, way too often. But yeah, I, I love his answer also. Well, you're not the last Dragonborn. Uh, kind of am. That, that's <laughs> awesome. So yes and is pretty much my the extent of my knowledge about improv techniques. Are there any other ones that you could talk about? Yeah, um, truth. Basically, whatever whatever someone is doing, whatever whatever is happening, that's, just be real to the scene. So if you start a scene and you walk on, you're like, Hey, how are you? And the guy goes, Oh, hey, how are you, uh, Martha? You're Martha. You know, you, you, whatever Martha is, now you are that. That's like that is also yes and, but it's also being true to what has been established. Another important rule is want, and know what your character wants and what direction your character plans on going and and doing. So those are those are pretty fair rules about improv. That Evan and I had talked about this once before about um, role playing in general. And that as a DM, my job isn't to, to create a story. It's to set up the scene. It's very similar to like improv where we work together. I know what your character is. I know what Caleb's character is. I'm setting the scene that you guys are outside of a dungeon. Go. And then at that part, when you guys are now in control of the scene as far as your interactions, I still, you know, if you enter the cave, I'll tell you the scenery. Right. But as far as what you guys say and do, that's you guys. As the DM really should try not to intrude on that if at all possible. Yeah, of course. So so whatever whatever they do is up to them. You right. can't really tell them how to react to each other or, or the world around them. If one of them wants to go piss in a corner, he can go piss in a corner. You can't stop that. <laughs> Not sure why you'd want to, but yeah. I, I was told the story a long time ago about when they came upon a gelatinous cube and they just kept throwing things at it and throwing things at it. And one guy goes, all right, I'm going to pee on it. <laughs> and he peed on it and the thing melted away. So some people like the weird stuff. <laughs> well, I guess if you got nothing else, yeah. Uh, 
There was definitely so Caleb, a splash you've been, been kind of quiet there, so uh, you have any thoughts on improv in the game? Yeah, I think in the big picture, anytime we are playing D&D or any type of role-playing game, really we're always improv You know, we're always playing pretend. We're always thinking, this is what I'm going to do, and then reacting to what actually happens in pretend world. So we're always changing ideas. We're always riffing a little bit. When I'm running a game, I like you guys were saying, very much try to be the facilitator. You know, if someone wants to do something crazy, I want to let them do it because they're going to have fun, and I just want to figure out how to make it happen and keep some reins on the situation. So you, a lot of times I will, if someone says, hey, I want to do this, this, and this, and it's totally off the wall, I'll just have them clarify how they want to do it or why they want to do it. Sometimes it's just a stalling technique so I can figure out what roles and rules I want to use, but a lot of times it's just to get more flavor from them. They'll get more of a, well, like how, we, how we're doing stuff in Fate a lot. Okay, you got a plus four, describe that right. kind of thing. I had written a, um, a, one of the posts for the website a while ago that I recently reposted talking about role-playing and then role-playing. And the, the idea behind that was we've seen that in situations where you will, as a player, come up with this just great speech on how you're trying to inspire the troops. And then the DM says, okay, roll your charisma check or diplomacy, and then you botch it. And then the DM is kind of stuck in a situation of, well, do I just throw that roll out because you as the player did such a great job? Or do I stick to the roll and you've wasted that great job? Why not reverse it? And in a situation where you're about to inspire the troops, roll first the dice and then role play the result. Mm -hmm. So if I roll really poorly, then as a player, I should intentionally do a bad job of inspiring the troops to go, look at the size of those men. They're bigger than us, but that's okay. You know, and, and just really kind of try to make it funny and interesting rather than having the, the die roll sort of counteract the role plan, make them kind of work in concert. So I think that's kind of what we're talking about here as well. And what you're saying is that, we should role play the result rather than role play and then roll for the result. Not to put words in your mouth. So back, Matthew, back to you for a minute. So do you mostly DM? Do you mostly play, or is it a mixture of both? Unfortunately, I mostly DM. Eh, unfortunately, yeah. So do you find that you are able to use these improv techniques more as a DM or as a player, or are they used uh, differently in those situations? Yeah, it's differently because I I have to uh, I have to make everything plausible and 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 work in the universe that I'm creating out of my own head. So that's how I, I would say the improv techniques are being used in that regard. Like I've had my friends run up the back of a dragon to punch another guy in the face. You know, it, that that's what he wanted to do. He rolled a good number, so that's that's what happened. Okay. Um, I, I think um, as a DM, I'm definitely more of an improv kind of guy, mm -hmm. partially because I'm lazy and I don't have a lot of time. So I don't spend a whole lot of time really laying out a lot of the details of my games. Gotcha. I kind of equate myself, you know, to Stephen King in some ways that I don't do outlines. And sometimes I love Stephen King, but sometimes it shows in his books. And I think sometimes it shows in my plots that I'm really good about taking what a player does and running with it. Mm -hmm. But sometimes I run with it so far that I actually have a hard time circling back onto an actual plot line. So as a as an improv person, do you spend like when you are prepping for a game? What does that look like? Are you drawing maps, rolling up stats, or are you just going, okay, I'm going to have the king, and he's kind of a dick? You know, like, what does your prep look like as an improv person? As an improv person, my prep is usually uh, zero to none. <laughs> I do little to no prep. I mean, sometimes I'll get the name of a town or, or, or you know, an NPC maybe that they're going to encounter, but usually I, I, I just, like, fly by the seat of my pants and just wing it. Like, a lot of times we'll start a campaign and I won't even know where I want them to go with it. I'll just be like, all right, we're rolling up characters, and then we'll just start dicking around here, and then I'll figure out where eventually I want them to go. All right, I, I guess I'm probably not as far improv as that, but, again, I don't have an actual improv background, so I'm just, just <laughs> DM training. Uh, well, but I should I'll do probably like... do a lot more of what you're doing than, <laughs> than the other way around. Well, like, I'll know that I know that they're heading to this town. I know when they get there, you know, the town's under a curse and they're all scared. And I might come up with the first guard they're going to talk to. But I mean, that's it's all mostly in my head. Right. I mentioned this before on podcast. I drive a lot for my job, so I'm constantly just sort of thinking about the game. But I don't write a whole lot of stuff down. Which also you'll notice if you do listen to my games, I often screw up names of NPCs. We'll call them something one time and something else the other because I forget what I called them. Like um, Belmont. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, also known as uh, Ola. Ola, and there was a, there was a. I think he had three names before that was over. So what about you, Caleb? For for prep, where do you fall in the the prep line? I'm right in the middle. Now, here's what's I think interesting and probably true for all of us. If I go back to the first campaign I ever ran as a GM, and I have the notes for it, I wrote out literally everything that was supposed to happen. Like, I sat down and said, I'm going to run a game for the first time. How do I do this? And I grabbed the old 3.5 DMG. I actually, like, rolled the population distribution of the town I was in, and I used that to kind of define my story. I, I wrote pages and pages of, okay, this guy does this, and this guy does that, and if the PCs say this to this guy at this time of day, this will happen. Like, I wrote this as this whole choose-your-own-adventure thing. and I almost fell asleep while you were just telling me about that. <laughs> well, 20 minutes into the game, I had to throw it out the window because yeah. everything went to hell. So, yeah, that was where I started, and I very quickly learned you got to do a lot more on the fly. When I'm writing a campaign now, my typical pattern is to get a dedicated plot that might be two or three sessions. So I'll kind of give people, I'll kind of do an outline of flashing GM arrow plot points I want to hit to tell the story for two or three games. And in those, I'll put plenty of kind of open world sandbox elements. And when we finish my little plot idea, I say, okay, go for it. And at, at that point, I'm incorporating stuff my players have done in those first couple sessions and how they are deciding to play off those little open sandbox plot points I've given them. And at that point, we're just kind of riffing back and forth. And I may stat out some monsters and an overall bad guy that I want to bring in and out back and forth, but at that point, it's pretty pretty loose. So that, that kind of ties in uh, with another topic I wanted to talk about, so I'll, I'll try to bridge it here with Matthew. So since you DM mostly, Matthew, yes. um, how do you encourage role-playing at your table for your players? Are they are your players also part of your troop? Are they improv-trained? Are these a mixture? Uh, it's a mixture. I have uh, I have guys that are more um, more easy to role-play with than, than roll dice, but I also have guys who would rather just roll the dice than, than role play, so it's it, it, it's a it's a rough it can be rough sometimes. So is there anything that you do to try to um, again encourage role play? Do you reward it? Do you have like any bonus XP or something that you trigger when someone does something funny or interesting? Uh, yeah, if, if something happens like that, I'll, I'll throw bonus XP. I, I usually throw uh, throw XP bonuses for people who can who can you know sum up what happened last time before a game. That's about that's about all the bonusing XP I do. But I, I try to I'm trying to get more immersive with all these podcasts I'm listening to. Like I'm I'm trying to encourage more immersive role play, but uh, I haven't had a chance to actually do it yet. It well, and I'm not even claiming necessarily that I do it well, but it is definitely difficult. Mm -hmm. And uh, and Caleb probably can respond to this because he and I are playing in a game right now. As a player, I'm usually the disruptive one. Because I constantly want to do the funny thing, but as a DM, that aggravates me when players do that. I'm like, stay in the story. But as a as the player, I'm always trying to find the funny thing that I can say here to to crack the group up. Because it's more about getting a laugh than anything. Mm -hmm. uh, so the kind of the thing I want to talk about. I sent you guys an email with the topics. I kind of want to jump down to the third one. As I was listening to a podcast recently, and it doesn't matter which one, but the host said something that just really kind of aggravated me pissed me off actually I've calmed down since then because I've kind of come to an understanding of what the person was trying to say I just think that they missed what I thought was the obvious answer so just to kind of paraphrase the situation it's kind of an edition war situation the, the host was talking about older editions versus newer ones and how older ones encourage more role play role versus newer editions roll play mm -hmm. and the example they gave is if you're a rogue and you want to find traps in the current editions, you would just say, well, I want to find a trap, and DM says, okay, roll a d20. I got an 18. Okay, great, you found a trap. And it's all rolling the dice. There's no actual, well, where exactly are you looking, and what exactly are you looking for, and what techniques are you using to find said trap? And what aggravated me about that is I, I kind of found it elitist and a little bit arrogant 
because you're rewarding player knowledge that is going to penalize someone who's new to the game without making it fun. And, and what I mean by that is, at least, and again, I'm interpreting what they said a little bit, that you wouldn't do that with any other stat other than like the intelligence. Like if you were a warrior and you wanted to swing your sword and hit a dragon, I wouldn't say, well, unless you can actually do 50 push-ups, I'm not going to let you do that because you, are, as a player, aren't strong enough to do that. And if you were a bard and you wanted to sing a song, I wouldn't actually make you sing a song or otherwise not let that work. So it's only this intelligent-based skills that they seem to think that one game favors over the other one. So they were given some examples of, you know, games they had played in where someone was looking for a trap on the floor and they pulled out a bag of marbles and they threw them on the ground and they saw where they rolled and, you know, one part of the floor wasn't level, so then they inspected it more. Long story short, too late. I'm just trying to imagine a brand new player walking into that game. They roll up a first level rogue and as soon as they walk straight into a room, they get killed by a trap and all the other players are like, well, you didn't look right. And I just didn't think that would be a fun game. So to me, what the answer would have been is that you would have encouraged the role playing that you wanted. When, this, when the person said, hey, I want to find a trap, you would say, okay, well, where are you looking? I don't know. I'm looking in the door frame. Okay. Now you ask them to roll their d20 and if they rolled really well, you might say something like, well, you don't find anything at the doorway, but you did notice, you know, this flagstone that was a little bit irregular. And you would sort of like spoon feed them the things that you wanted them to say. So the next time they look for traps, they might regurgitate that back and say, okay, I'm going to look for the flagstones that are uneven. And you're kind of training them to play the way you want rather than just saying, I don't know, the, the arrogance of, of how they said that that was a bad way to play just aggravated me. So what do you guys think about the example that I murdered there or your thoughts on that in general? Uh, I, I also listened to a lot of podcasts that, uh, that um, you know, uh, toot one edition over another or one game system over another because of the same thing, because of the rolling. Like, like 4E is a big target for everyone. Everyone's got a huge problem with 4E because it's a lot like an MMO. But I, that's why a lot of my friends like it so much because it's so easy to roll up a character. You sit down on a computer, you just pick your stats, you scroll through, and then you're done. Whereas if we're playing three, I got to take out a library full of books, and you got to crunch numbers and do math. And no one wants to do math at nine o'clock at night. So, you know, it's a, uh, it's different, and it doesn't change their their role playing. Like if we were playing three over four e, my players who are role players are still going to role play, and my players who don't role play are still going to roll the dice. So I, I understand what you're saying, where it encourages and discourages people. I think it just, yep. you know. It's the people. It's not the not a set thing. Yeah, and and I agree. And I'll let Caleb jump in here in a second. But I think that was kind of my thought: is that if if no matter what edition you're playing, if you want people to be that descriptive when they're searching for traps, that's fine. But don't penalize them if they don't. Mm -hmm. that, you know, the same thing again. Because in my, I mean, I'm a fat guy. I'm in my basement right now, so I have a little bit of leeway here. But you know, the the stereotypical D&D player, chubby guy in the basement, that kind of thing. So if we were to turn that to that strength-based challenge where I say, okay, well, you can't actually do that unless you can physically do 50 push-ups, that may not be possible for that person. So why penalize the brand-new player who doesn't know D&D &D yet mm -hmm. because they don't search right? Because I just think you're going to turn players away rather yeah. than bringing them in and encouraging them. And that you know maybe a year later they are that guy that's checking everything and they know all the tricks of the trade and they do an immersive job of role-playing. But that first night, if you had a character that just got killed I just don't see that person coming back to that table, and I think you've you've limited the hobby rather than encourage it. What about you, Kale? What do you think? Yeah, I definitely agree with uh, pretty much everything both of you guys are saying. Um, it's up to the GM to foster that environment where players want to get that descriptive and want to get that immersed in the game. There's nothing wrong with just I rolled rolling a die and say, okay, I got an 18, what happens? There's nothing wrong with that kind of gameplay. And there's nothing wrong with the, okay, I, I run and I parkour off this wall and run five feet up over here and do a half gainer whatever over there. You know, who cares how you want to play as long as you're playing in the big picture? Well, I, th um, I think part of it too with the role-playing aspect, and I think this is where Fate does a great job, is that me as Michael... I don't know anything about hacking a computer. Like, I know literally nothing about it. But if I'm playing in a game where my character does, 
I shouldn't be penalized for that. You know, if I say, okay, I'm going to hack into the system, I don't want the DM to say, okay, well, what program are you using? I don't know. You know, how are you interfacing with the door? I don't know. But my character does. And the same thing, if you're playing a rogue that has survived a dungeon, they probably know how to search for traps. So don't don't take my ignorance and penalize my character for it. I think that was what kind of aggravated me more than anything. Right. Well, I think what's really interesting on top of that is it really is only a handful of skills that are are that dividing line that people want to harp on. It's usually only some sort of dex-based skill, like searching for something or looking for something. How do you want to look? How do you want to test for this? Or some of the more kind of off-the-wall perform or um, profession skills that players might utilize. And it seems like in those specific areas, that's where that line is drawn, that some people want you to go crazy in-depth knowledge, and some people just want to be, well, I got an 18, what does that represent? Social skills, too, fall under that, I think. How do you want to be diplomatic? How yep. How do you want to be diplomatic? How are you intimidating him? Are you, are you, uh, you know, are you, do you know anything about that race? Are you, are you invoking some sort of curse? Yeah, I think they all fall under the same thing. Now, I think that is one of the hardest areas to actually role play out. If you say, okay, I'm going to roll a diplomacy, and the GM just looks at you and says, how do you want to be diplomatic? You really have to jump into the deep end of the game and start thinking, well, my lord, I, I came from long ago, and blah, 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 blah. And it, for some people, that's a hard transition to make. And that can really throw the, the brakes on the game and stop it being fun for some people. Okay, so, so let's answer that question, Caleb. You're the DM, and I want to diplomat, I want to diplomatize the king, and I say, I rolled a D, I rolled D20. What are you going to say as the DM? Hmm. Well, that depends on two things. One, my mood. Do I want to <laughs> play with you back and forth like that? And two, what do I know about you as a player and your play style? Now, let's take this. It's actually you, and I'm drawing this off of the knowledge I've drawn from listening to you run and playing with you in Fate. Yeah, if I was up for it and I was on the ball... I would try to go back and forth with you a little bit because I know you like doing that and I know that's where you kind of thrive and pull those awesome, memorable game moments out of. So as a GM, I want to give that to you. And okay, so now I'm, I'm a brand new player. This is my first night at the table and I barely know what my stats mean. Then I won't make you do a damn thing. <laughs> okay. If, if you are a brand new player and you say, well, hey, wait a minute. I think I can use diplomacy here, can't I? I yeah. say, sure. And I would explain bullet points what that means. Um, I would have you roll the die. And then I would just take over the story at that point. Okay, you got an 18. So that means uh, you won. You talked in circles around that king, and he did anything you want. You know, okay. I would just tell the story. All right, so you basically take narrative control at that point and kind of summarize, you know, you've heard this about the king, you know he likes to drink, so you work that into your conversation and, and just sort of narrate that whole exchange. So, Matthew, right. would you do anything differently or anything you would add to those two situations, a social skill with an adept player versus a newbie? With an adept player, I, I, I try to, like, force something out of him, like, well, well, well what, you know, what would you say? Did you, did you bring up his wife? Did you... You know, where, where were you going with this? I understand what you rolled, but I need something. If it was a new guy, I'd probably try to, like, spoon-feed him the conversation. Like, the king says this. So what did you say back with your 16? You know? Oh, oh, so you know of my country. You know, I would uh, I try to try to help coax him in gently, you know? Okay, I, I do that somewhat with mine, more with, like, bluffs. Uh, it came up in a situation once where uh, we, we were trying to roll a bluff, and um, and what I basically came down, down excuse me what it came down to is I asked the person like what were they trying to tell the, like what were they trying to say the bluff was, 
And in my head, if they picked a, a bluff that had a high chance of success, I gave them a bonus that they didn't they didn't know about. So if they tried to bluff someone and tell them a story that they knew wasn't true, then I gave them some negatives they didn't know about. So if they didn't say anything, it really would have still would have came down to the die. And that's kind of what I'm looking for for those newbies is that I don't expect them to go into uh, you know a thespian moment where they stand up and they start emoting and talking in character. Mm-hmm. But I want them to tell me, are they intimidating with strength? Are they intimidating with um, a show of like magical power? Are they trying to bring up a lie that they know that they heard a tavern wench say two you know two towns over? I want them to try to just give me the general specific or the general stuff about what they're talking about rather than ex- expressing it in the game. And I think that helps encourage people one to play pay attention to the plot because in my games I probably have told them at some point in time that the king is a drunkard or a womanizer or he's a devout man holy man and if you start talking about drinking women he's going to turn off of you that kind of stuff. So anything else you guys would add about social skills and uh, maybe how to encourage a new player and how to get the most out of a, a long-time player? I, you know, I, would, I wouldn't I would do it, like, in public, but maybe just talking to a new guy and telling him, you know, like, you know, we're all friends here. No one's going to no one's gonna laugh at you. You know, I would never have any, any, any sort of that at the table. Just we're all friends. We're all having a good time. Anything you do is going to make this better for everyone else. Caleb, anything? Yeah, I would just make sure that my seasoned players are there to make it an easy transition for anyone who's new. Seasoned players, even if you've only been around the table two or three times with each other, you start to learn real fast how to play off of each other and the signals that you give each other. And there's little you know, in-jokes and back and forth. So right. I want to foster those. I want to keep that relationship developing. And when I bring someone new in, you know, say, hey, if the guys make a joke and the new player doesn't get it, I might pause the game for a second hey, this is that really funny thing that happened then, and this is the fallout of it. So you can play off of that. I try to, again, like Matthew said, spoon feed them. You know, give them more of an influx of information about the world to try to help them jump into it. So I want to transition. Actually, I'm going to skip the, the other topic I sent you because I kind of had a thought about one I want to get your guys' opinion on, is how do you handle secret information at the table that only one player knows? And the reason I bring this up is one of the podcasts that I listen to that I love is Nerd Poker. If you guys haven't listened to that, it's a fantastic actual play. Mm-hmm. And um, But it's kind of weird, at least for me, that uh, the way the DM handles it is if I'm going to tell Matthew something and Matthew's the only one there, he will actually make the other players leave the room so they can't actually hear the information. And what usually ends up happening is that everyone comes back in the room and then Matthew would tell everyone what they missed. So I don't know that it has the effect that they're going for all the time and, and the hassle of making a bunch of people get up and leave the table, but I do like that, that there are some times where it is important and it is a big part of the story that certain people know things that other people don't. So is there any techniques that you guys use? I mean, do you hand notes? Do you guys use your phones and like text people like, hey, remember your character knows this guy is the, the murderer, but you don't want them to know? Like, like, how do you guys handle secret information? I'll start with Caleb this time. I've kind of gone to both extremes. Um, back in one of my old games, back when I was Connor, the cleric I've talked about a few times, there was a point in the game where I was, well, I was dead. <laughs> um, and the GM actually had my own little story playing out in the kitchen as opposed to the dining room where everyone else was. So he would come over to me and say, okay, you're dead, but this is what's happening, and then come back to the table where the party was, because in that whole mix-up I was getting rezzed, and then they had to confine me, and back and forth, back and forth. But I thought that was really cool. But that can get pretty damn complicated. I think notes is probably the easiest, whether they're just physical three-by-fives you're passing back and forth. Sometimes, though, you just have to kind of treat this as a game and say, okay, guys, here's what's happening Michael, you are the only one who knows this. Matthew, you don't know this is happening. You see the result of it, but you don't know the facts. And sometimes you just have to trust your players to be responsible and not metagame that. Mm-hmm. Matthew, what do you think? I've done the uh, the note thing, uh, whispers, uh, and I've done texts. That, that That's basically what I've done. Whenever that has to happen, I mean, they're going to find out eventually. Whether whether he makes it known to them the second he gets back in the room, or or it takes a session or two, but everyone's eventually going to know. 
Yeah, I think it would kind of echo what Kayla was saying is it would probably depend as much on the group as anything else. If it if it's as simple as like a spot check and, you know, you're at the camp and everyone's asleep and Caleb's character's only one up, I'm not going to make everyone leave the room to tell Caleb you see two wolves circling the camp because he's just going to wake them up and tell them that. But if it is something where Caleb's like, okay, I'm going to go off and speak to my contact that no one else knows about because I'm secretly in this guild of thieves, then maybe because I don't know that it would depend on the, whether or not I felt like I could trust the players to keep that separate. Because there are some players that I think could do a really good job role playing it, and other people mm-hmm. would be like, next time Caleb's character does anything weird, they'll be like, aha, he's he's sneaking off. And so I think it would probably depend a lot on the group. I'm not a big fan of sending people out because, again, 90% of the time they're going to just tell the information the next time they're all together. So I don't really see the point in it. But I don't know. I guess situationally, I can see how that would be uh, be beneficial. Another thing that I thought of, and I've done this before. Uh, it actually in the Made Men games is when uh, we introduces Travis's character Quarian, who was supposed to have known magic because he came from the other time when magic was around. And I just told him before the game started secretly, I said, at some point tonight, your ability to read magic is going to come up. When it does, this is what you know. And I just told him what, so that I didn't want to get to the table where. I, you know, when it comes up and it's that moment where Quarian should shine, and then I just tell everybody what Quarian knows. Like, I just didn't feel like that would be as effective mm-hmm. as in the moment I wanted Travis to be able to say, actually, that's a summoning spell for demons. And the fact that he actually already knew it, I thought played a lot better at the table than everyone looking at me to tell them what Quarian was telling them. Have you guys ever done anything like that? Like, preempt a player with information their characters should know? Um, I've, I've played in games where I've been preempted with things that I should know, but. Uh, I've, I don't think I've ever preempted players myself. I'm trying to think. Hmm. No, I don't think so. I, I mean, I've played in games where I've been taken aside and told, this is what you're doing, you know, this is your mission, but this is what you're doing right now, so just figure it out from there. Okay, what about you, Caleb? Yeah, I did one game where I preempted everybody it was a, an old 4th edition game. I only got to run for one or two sessions. And that was a situation where I just laid everything out on the table. And we were a really good group of friends at that point, And we, we were good role players. So I, I knew that I could say, okay, you know this only, and only you know this. And there wasn't going to be any overlap. But actually going back to something real quick to, to flash back to the first topic we were talking about, when you, let's say you lay out part of the plot to one character, because they're the only, the wizard went off to the wizard library, and he had an awesome 32 role, and, and he got all the information on the king that they're trying to find. You can sit there and tell him a, a 10 minute story about what he only knows, and then you get back to the party, and every DM says this, okay, you get back to the party. Do you tell him what you know? Yes. Well, how do you tell them? Uh, and there's that dead that dead space in the air. Mm-hmm. Half, the, half the time the player says, well, I just tell them whatever you just told me. Or it goes back to how they want to role play out those you know, bluff intelligence diplomacy kind of skills, whether they want to actually share that information how their character would share that information. And I think those are the moments where, going back to my early example about uh, the, the rant on the other podcast, is that you should encourage that, but you shouldn't penalize it. So mm-hmm. if someone mm-hmm. does go through and, and regurgitate that the way their character would filter it and highlight the things that they think are important and minimize the things that they don't, and then I would probably want to give them some bonus XP. But if they just say, yeah, you know, this is what I found, I wouldn't penalize them for it either. Right, I agree. All right. Um, so the last thing I want to talk about, this probably fairly quick, um, is about bookkeeping. And uh, again, I was listening to another podcast recently, and they talked about whether you should keep up with that at all, and you know, completely at all. So whether it be encumbrance or ammunition are the two they talked about. You know, so I just want to ask: Do you guys have your characters track that? Do you, unless it just becomes silly, do you guys really care how much armor or equipment people are carrying in your games? We'll start with you, Matt. Yeah, I, I make them keep track of it because I think it's. Uh, like I've played a, a lot of like D20 Modern, 
in like uh, things with bows and arrows, and and I don't like people carrying around like sixty weapons. I did have I I've had a couple fighters carrying around like three different swords, but that's not out of the realm of possibility, you know. Um, but I I do make them keep track of it. Like I'll I'll turn a bit. Did you mark off that shot? Like uh, in Iron Kingdoms, like uh, a lot of them have revolvers, so they get like six shots before they got to reload. But they got to reload, so. I, I do make them keep track of it or else it becomes a ridiculous movie where everyone's just pulling the trigger and the bolts just keep coming out of these magic guns. Right. So, so I'll, I'll go ahead and double – I'll ask you this again before we move to Caleb. So is there any techniques that you use to track ammunition? Do you guys use like poker chips or some sort of physical representation so that you can actually see how many bullets are left? I just mark it on the sheet. I mean some sheets even have a, a you know boxes for it. Right. And they got pencils, so that that's that's what I do. Okay, same thing, Caleb. Do you track it, and if so, how? I track it when it matters. Sometimes if the ammo plays more of a crucial role, like if it's a gun or if it's a unique... Like if, if the players found six super poison arrows, yeah, I'm going to make sure that they keep track of that on their sheet. And typically I will just mark it on their sheet or you know, the player might have a little post-it note next to his character sheet, okay, I have six of these arrows and 20 of these arrows, that kind of thing. If they're an alchemist or someone who is making unique items that they only have a certain number of, if, if a player goes out of the way to buy some crazy, unique piece of ammunition, yeah, then it's important to keep track of its use and its existence. If it's more of a mundane arrow half the time I don't care because you know what we're playing a game and if you're a responsible ranger you know how many arrows you have and you're going to go drop a gold piece to buy 60 more next time you're in town let's not throw a fit over that <laughs> so I think I'll lean more towards your side Caleb and um, that I very rarely track that unless it is something that that's part of the plot because I have put my characters in desert situations where food and water becomes important because they don't have easy access to it. Or if they're going into an extensive dungeon, then I will ask them to track it more closely because they won't be able to refill their quivers, you know, readily. But what I find uh, sometimes happens is because I don't track them normally, when I say, okay, I need you guys to start tracking food and water, then I sort of kind of tip my hand about what I'm putting them into. So it's one of those like metagame situations where I don't like the fact that I have to tip my hand, but I don't want them to not realize that I'm asking them to track stuff that I don't normally want them to track. So I'm kind of torn between what's the best way to handle that. Um, so I don't know. I don't know that I have a good answer for that. But my other thought was, again, with like using poker chips or you know Tic Tacs or something to, to track things, I like the idea of that because I think you're more likely to do it accurately. But does that make it too gamey? You know, does, does that stop being? Because I want it to be an immersive role play situation. And if I give you a card that says plus one sword, so that you remember you have that, does that make it more like Monopoly now because you got tokens? So does it hurt the role play experience to have those sort of things? What do you guys think about that? Like, can props hurt the game, or they help the game, or are they neutral? Well, from my standpoint, uh, you're talking to a guy who, who basically almost always is playing with miniatures and terrain and maps, so props are fine for me, and I, I'm, a lot of my players, are, are they're comfortable with them, and when they're not there, they kind of get a little shaken. But like I said, the card is there, and I, you know, I've never found a need to use anything else to denote things, because everything's usually written on whatever pieces of paper are there. Okay. Anything else, Caleb? Um, I think using cards for items is fine. Uh, I agree that I like to have the game be immersive, but we also have to be aware of the reality that we are sitting there playing a game, and sometimes you have to have stuff written down. Especially if you're doing something where someone has a lot of items, or you're playing a very untypical for you, Michael, but high magic or high item campaign, um, like I tend to run people tend to lose things on their sheets. So having a 3x5 or a post-it, hey, you have this, it's important. I played in a, a Gen Con game. It uh, was a Deadlands game this past year, and uh, I really liked the, the props that that GM used. 
because they were props that were built to to help hold the immersion. So we actually had these little blocks of wood that sort of looked old timey, and they had shell casings in them. So you were physically touching shell casings when you would remove or add them to your clips. And uh, I just thought that was, it was a prop, but it didn't break the immersion because it was designed to help immerse you, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And we also used miniatures, and uh, he actually had physical buildings. That there, I'm sure there's something you could probably buy. I'm not familiar with them. but So there was like an old-timey church. It was a it was a prop, but it looked like an old-timey church, and he had set up a whole city. So even though we were using maps and minis, which I generally don't like to do, it didn't detract like usually I think they do because you, you were actually walking around. It looked like an old-timey town. Um, so I think maybe sometimes having the right props is better or worse than having no props at all, if that makes sense. Like I don't really use maps and minis at all, but I am jonesing hard to go out and buy a whole set of Dwarven Forge stuff. Because I would love just for my players to come downstairs one day and see this just crazy dungeon out, and I, I actually think they would have like nerd boners seeing that. <laughs> even cause, mostly because we never do that, and I wouldn't want to do it all the time. But I think just like a one-time, maybe like a Saturday long game, I think that would be an awesome experience. It's a regular boner at that point, you know, not just a nerd <laughs> boner. It's just a straight up, straight up erection. Nice. All right, guys. Well, those are all the topics I wanted to cover. Uh, Caleb, did you have anything you wanted to throw out to us before we go? Um, nothing I can think of right now, no. All right, Matthew, what about yourself? Anything you want to add? I know you also you have your own podcast. Feel free I to do. plug it here. I, uh, I, I am a co-host of the Probably Questionable podcast. We can be found at probablyquestionable.com. And uh, we are a proud member of the Carpe GM Digital Network. And uh, I'm a founding member of IPA Comedy. So I guess I can send you those links. You can throw them in. That would be cool. Absolutely. Send them to me. I will put them in the, the show notes. Yeah. Uh, just want to thank you guys both for, for joining me tonight. For anyone else out there listening, we do really appreciate comments on the website, on Facebook, on Google, on Twitter. Both of the people that you heard tonight, I basically met through the website, uh, You know, sent emails, hey, I like the show, started chatting. So if you have something you'd like to say, then uh, throw me some nice comments. Maybe I'll invite you on the show. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you guys so much. I appreciate your time. You can give us feedback and comments at our website, dndacademy.com. You can check out previous podcasts at our website and subscribe to future ones on iTunes. If you have a suggestion for a topic, we'd love to hear it. Email your ideas to podcast at dndacademy.com, and you can connect with us on Twitter at dnd underscore academy. As always, thanks for listening, and remember, if you're having fun, you're doing it right.